do the dishes, dear. I promise. I said that on Tuesday morning and Friday, they were still in the sink. You ever done anything like that? Um, you promise something that you actually don't deliver, right? Of course you have. We all have at some point or another. But what happens when the promise is not quite so innocent? She's only a friend at work, I promise. We'll be okay, I promise. I'm fine, I promise. Kind of changes the tone a bit, doesn't it? Everyone knows the pain of an unkept promise. People let us down, we get distant. It's human nature to be fickle, flighty, and forgetful. And if we're not careful, it's easy to suspect that God might be the same way. Seriously, for a second, have you ever wondered, um, did God just forget about that promise? <laughs> like, where were you when this happened? What was that season of my life all about, God? Why did you let this in? Everyone knows the pain of an unkept promise. But what hurts even more is the, th the subtle thoughts that accompany those unkept promises. Things like, maybe he just didn't care about me enough to follow through. Maybe I'm not important enough to God to be remembered. Or worse, maybe he never intended to keep his promise at all. That feeling is a lot like what God's people were wondering in our text this morning. So this is week four of a four-week series in Haggai. And if you've missed a few weeks or if you're just joining us, here's a quick glimpse over our shoulder to where we've been. Week one, Haggai's message is all about priorities. Get busy doing what God says is important. Week two is all about perspective. When we're tempted to focus on what's right in front of us, we need to zoom out. Week three is all about perfection. We don't have it. God demands it. But in his grace, he gives it to us. And week four, this week, you're right, it starts with a P, for those of you that are tracking. This is all about a promise. You might remember the last words God spoke to his people last week were, I will bless you. Well, now they've got some questions. Saying, okay, God, well, you're going to bless us, but how? And who's going to lead this blessing? And, and when is this going to happen anyway? And God, because he's great at anticipating his people's questions, answers all three. But he answers them in a way that is completely unexpected. Haggai is done addressing the crowd. Instead, he zooms in on one person. We're lifted from this construction site and we're catapulted into this like apocalyptic sounding holy war. And God isn't talking about crops anymore. Instead, he peels back the curtain of time to show us his beautiful plan. Haggai points his people and us to three solid sources of confidence when we doubt God's goodness. And this little book, tucked at the edge of the, New, of the Old Testament, teaches us that if we want to enjoy God's promise, we got to focus on what matters most. So first things first, before we dive in, this message is going to be a little bit different than uh, the other three, um, because just it's going to be, flow a little bit differently. I usually preach verse by verse, you guys know that. Um, this one, it's best to understand this one kind of all in one big chunk. All right, so instead of like appetizer, main course, dessert, uh, this is going to be like all one big thing. I ruined chili for you last week. I'm aware of that, so sorry. 
This one's going to be like you throw everything in a blender and you just push it all together. I hope I didn't ruin your protein shake that you have in the morning. But that's the way we're going to look at this text. Also, one note of intro. When um, we're looking at this text, I want to give you a concept called messianic prophecy. And this sounds really heavy, especially like two minutes in. But here's the idea. I believe that when God wrote his word, whether it's in the law or the poetry or the prophets, it all points to one ultimate person called the Messiah, which is Hebrew for promised one. And so a little bit of where we're going to be today talks about that. God never does anything by accident, and you're going to get a glimpse of that today. Last little bit before we get in. This is another one of those like back corner cobwebby parts of the Bible that when you first read it, you're like, what is this even talking about, right? This sounds like when an insurance adjuster starts talking to you about all these like little details, you're like, I don't quite understand what this has to do with me. Just give me the bottom line. Um, but what we said last week uh, bears out this week as well. We don't make the Bible relevant. We discover its relevance. And so like panning for gold, we're going to see what God has for us today. So, Sources of confidence that give us hope when we doubt God's goodness. I said there's three. I'm actually just going to give you two. Sorry. Here's the first one. The first source of confidence is God's past action. So let's take a look at this text. Haggai chapter 2. Take a look in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Now, see, here's the first thing we see. This is the second time in the same day that God has spoken to this man called Haggai. Now, here's how we ought to see this. The first time was with the whole crowd, and he talked about his perfection, something everybody needed to see. He addressed the whole people, the priests, and he said, even though you are sinful, and I am sinful, and everybody in this room is so sinful, even though that, God will one day bring his blessing. Now, the second time in the same day, it's like God dismisses the team to the locker room, says, you guys head that way. He kind of grabs Haggai and says, hey, I need you to go get Zerubbabel, the governor. Bring him back over here, and we're just going to have like a little huddle. And so that's this message. It's Haggai being the voice of God and Zerubbabel. Remember how I'm going to say that I'm bringing my perfection, I'm going to bring my blessing? Here's how I'm going to do it. So verse 21 and 22, here's where things get pretty incredible. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Like, whoa, sounds like a scene from Braveheart. Like, what is going on here? This is incredibly violent. God's doing five things. I want to break each one of them down, and then we're going to put the picture back together to see what this means. First, God said he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. If this sounds familiar, it's because he just said it a little bit ago, earlier in the chapter, back in verse 6. Haggai basically repeats a prophecy he made two months earlier so that God's people would know that he is serious. Second thing we see God doing is he's going to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. This word overthrow is used when God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, this wicked city that was doing unthinkable things to people. And he said he's going to start acting in a way that pushes his sovereignty over human wickedness. Third thing, he's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms. 
This one's almost sarcastic. It's when God's going, you think that kingdom is powerful. You think that guy is influential. That army is incredible. Just wait till I show up. Fourth thing, and I hope you catch this one. God said, I'm going to overthrow the chariots and their riders. Any idea where that might come from? Think about that. What event in Israel's past had chariots and riders that were overthrown by God's justice? The Exodus. Remember what happened with God's people? They're set free from Egypt. They go right up to the shore of the Red Sea, and they got Pharaoh's army behind them, chasing them, ready to bring them back into slavery. God splits the sea in half. They walk through. They get safely to the other side, but then Pharaoh's army comes in, and the sea closes up around them. And then there's this fifth thing that God's going to do. Equally powerful, but probably less familiar to us. He says, I'm going to destroy them all, each by their own sword. This alludes to a specific time in Israel's history. Back to the book of Judges, where God delivered his people from a savage tribe called the Midianites, who had impressed Israel for seven years. And they got so paranoid that this army actually killed each other. So when you put all that together, all these five actions each one reaching back to a time in the history of God's people. You spin it and you swirl it around in our imagination, and it creates this incredible scene. Now, when I imagine all five of those things happening, one word comes to my mind, chaos. And that's how we're supposed to see this. This is not supposed to be an easy thing to picture because that's how far off of God's intentions the world has become. Verses 22 and 23 are not supposed to be easy. But here's what I want us to see in Haggai's picture. God's justice is never an upsetting of the world. It is a right setting of the world. God's justice is never an upsetting of the world. It's always a right setting of the world. These aren't destructive acts out of anger. They're restorative acts driven by sovereignty. So I was in fifth grade, and uh, my family had just sat down for lunch at Grinders in North Canton. I think they had just opened up. And uh, so we got in there, we're sitting down, and like I, I asked my mom, I said, hey, could, could you read me what that, the chalkboard says? It's this like daily specials chalkboard, you know what I'm talking about? It's probably the same chalkboard. It's sitting right there by the host stand, right? And I'm like, I can't see what that says. And mom goes, seriously, can't see that? And I was like, no, I can't. No, and she thought I was joking. She goes, hmm, okay. So off to the eye doctor we go, plops me down in the chair, puts this big cold thing up to my face. Like, how many other faces has that cold thing touched? Like, it's kind of freaking me out. And he goes, okay, how do you see this? Click or this? Click. I'm like, oh, that one. Okay, now. Click or now. Click. Okay, now. And we go through this whole rigmarole. And then like a week later, like my wonderful windshield-sized, wire-rimmed, early 90s glasses showed up. I pop them on, and I, I probably looked around the room for like a week just like this, like, oh my gosh, I've been missing out on so much. Look at what everybody's been able to see, and I have totally missed it. That's what's going on here. The world has become so out of focus. When God finally puts his adjusting glasses on, and we see the world with him as its sovereign head, it's a little jarring. Seeing the world the right way seems unbelievable. We're going to make a jump. So hang on a second. We're going to make a 2,500-year jump from where we are in Haggai to something I think very many of us feel today. Here's what I see. 
I notice that even though life is supposed to be easier, we are less fulfilled. I see depression and disconnection, distraction and anxiety everywhere, and you do too. I see people suffering from silent crises just getting through their day. And if I'm guessing correctly, I think you probably noticed the same thing. Writing on this subject, author Alan Noble recently wrote this, and I want to read it to you because I think it's spot on. I think it's right from this text. Here's what he says. Most people will show no signs of the despair that follows them around, or at least those signs will be extremely subtle and brief. They might surface in a prayer request. Can I just ask you guys to pray for a stressful situation at work? Sudden moodiness or proclivities toward diverting addictions, but mostly we are high-functioning adults. We are all high-functioning disorders. We may go through periods where our functioning breaks down and we stare blankly at our email inbox or debate whether to get out of bed, but we feel we can't physically move, and for the most part, we function. We get up, we eat, we work, we buy things, we are entertained, we are stimulated, and we sleep, but it's there waiting for the right moment to assert itself. And then he asks a really courageous and insightful question. What if sometimes anxiety and depression will be rational and moral responses to a fundamentally disordered environment. What's he asking? Here's what he's saying. Maybe the only sane response to a world that is so disordered is to hunger for something out of this world to bring us back into focus. I think that's a sentiment that Haggai's audience would have applauded. These people knew something about living in a scattered and disorienting place, just like we do. They knew the futility of trusting in earthly kingdoms and leaders, just like we do. They knew what it meant to live in a cosmically disordered world, just like we do. And into that space, God speaks one strong source of confidence, his past action. Because here's our temptation. We are tempted to believe that God did great things in the past. I mean, they're written here like a fairy tale, but that was then and this is now. Where are you, God? It's so stinking easy to buy into the narrative that says, well, this is just how things are, right? Shrug your shoulders, purse your lips, look at the ground, kick the dirt, and move on. Christians can be those kind of people, but we ought not to be a this-is-how-things-are kind of people. We should be think-of-what-will-be people. Haggai's message gives us permission to grieve the weight of an out-of-focus, disordered world. But he also uses God's past action to focus our future hope. So that's the first source of confidence, God's past action. But then there's a second source of confidence when we doubt God's goodness, God's future plan. So back into the huddle. It's Haggai the prophet being the voice of God, talking with Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And then here's what he says. I like to imagine in my head like he just brings him in close and he kind of like points at him in the face. Verse 23, on that day declares the Lord of hosts. What day? The day that all this is going to go down. 
I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that even mean? And more importantly, what does that have to do with us here in 2019? The text says that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. And all you got to know about that is that's a symbol of authority. Kings wore these things, right? Governors wore these things. You can read about them in the Bible. They're all over the place. It was like a seal. You ever seen that one? Like people would attach a letter and they'll put wax on it and then they'll put a stamp on it. That's what a signet ring was. It was a king's authority. But Zerubbabel is only a governor. He's not a king. Why is that significant? Okay, history time. Track with me. 450 years before Haggai, in 922 BC, God pulled King David aside. Everybody know King David, right? David and Goliath, shepherd boy David, psalm writer, David. Okay, this guy. Pulls him aside, and he makes him two promises. It's called the Davidic covenant, and he promises him two things. He says, one, the Messiah, this promised one, this one-day future king, will come from your family pretty astounding. Second promise, there will always be a king on the throne of my people Israel. Cool. Sounds good. So 400 and some years go by, yada, 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 king after king after king, some good, some bad, some iffy, right? And one of the last kings before the exile, okay, before Haggai, one of the last kings is a guy named Kaniah, and he is a bad dude, okay? That's all you got to know about Kaniah. He did not follow God. He did not lead his people well, right? And so God says to this wicked king, he says, you are like a signet ring, Kaniah, that I am going to rip off my finger. So if you're God's people and you hear that word about Kaniah, kind of makes you go, man, I'm, God seems like he's sort of changing his mind a little bit here. Interesting. So back up to Haggai's time. They get back from exile. They're working, building the temple. Everything's going great. They've got their law back because they're going to start practicing that. They've got their temple back. Worship's going to start happening. They're back in the land. This is all really, really good. But all you have is a governor with a Babylonian name. God, where's our king? You had an opportunity to make this guy a king, God, and you didn't. He's just a governor. No king. God, you have lost control. Why aren't you giving us what we want, God? You are God, aren't you? <laughs> Ever said that? I have. God, why aren't you? Bop, bop, bop. You are God, right? Why won't you fix this? I'll be making the decisions from here on out because last time I listened to you, it did not go so well for me. <laughs> you ever said that? <laughs> but we can look further. If you go to the New Testament, I want to read something to you. The Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy. It's basically the Ancestry.com version of Jesus' story. <laughs> and if you look closely, you'll find some really interesting names. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the book of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's interesting. Son of Abraham. And it lists off a bunch of names, and you can skip down. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon... Kaniah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of who? Zerubbabel. Interesting. These two very obscure kings show up in Jesus' family tree. 
So let's put all this back together. God's restoring something that was lost. Zerubbabel, this random governor in this backwater kingdom at the obscure part of history, is in the genealogy of the king of kings. That ought to nail us to the wall. He serves God's purpose to restore David's kingdom by pointing the way to someone greater. Someone who would be the peace that Haggai prophesied about. Someone who would be the perfection that God requires. Someone who would restore worship to the temple in a way people had no idea because he would be the temple. Someone who would have the words king of the Jews hung above his head while he suffered and died, fulfilling centuries of prophecy. Do you see what God is setting up? Not about Zerubbabel. It's about somebody greater. Eve saw him. It looked like a snake crusher to her. Jacob saw him too. He looked like a lion coming from Judah. To Daniel, he looked like the son of man. For Esther, he was the silent worker from behind the scenes. From Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. Moses saw him, he looked like the perfect Passover lamb. When Daniel saw him, he was this glowing son of man. When Isaiah saw him, he was a suffering servant. And for David, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he was a righteous man who was pierced, persecuted, and became payment. You get my point? The entire Old Testament is shot through with Jesus. He just took a little longer to get here than what God's people were expecting. God's people had to wait 500 more years. And the most tragic thing about it is they didn't even recognize him when he came. Why does God make us wait? Anybody here waiting on anything? (laughs) Waiting on that promise to come around. Waiting on that relationship to heal. Waiting on that wayward child, the distant spouse, a broken friendship. Waiting on that boss to recognize your work. Waiting on a diagnosis so that you can think clearly. Waiting on a family member to apologize. We wait. God works. I don't know why it's that way, but that's just what God does. The Christian life is a life of delayed but certain hope. I want to make sure you hear that. The Christian life is a life of delayed but certain hope. Abraham, think about that guy. God made him a promise that he would give him a son, and then he made him wait 24 years to Isaac. Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old when God starts stirring his heart, and then his brothers sell him into slavery. He gets shipped off to Egypt. 22 years go by before he sees his brothers again. Moses. God turned him from miracle baby into prince of Egypt, and then from prince of Egypt into exile, and then he meets him on a mountainside, and he makes him be a shepherd for 40 years. God doesn't delay because he forgot about you. God doesn't delay because you're not important to him. He doesn't care for you. No, God delays because he wants to lead you and teach you. What did Abraham learn about God in those 24 childless years? Joseph, how did false accusations and betrayal and jail time shape his understanding of God's provision? Moses, 40 years of leading sheep around. What did that teach him about leadership? What's the point? Just like God's people in Haggai's time, God owns you. God has plans for you. 
He is not beholden to you. He doesn't answer to you. And he will work his plan according to his timing. And so the question is not, God, are you going to keep your promise? But God, will you help me be faithful until you do? The Christian life is a life of delayed but certain hope. He is always working. So that's the second reason for confidence, God's future plan. So we're wrapping up a series today, and I'm aware of that, not just a message, but this little series in in Haggai. And I made a promise to you a month ago that Haggai's little book is one of the most relevant messages for the church in 2019. And I'm sticking to it because I love it. (laughs) We said that to keep our eyes fixed on God's promises, perspective, and perfection and promise, we've got to remember what matters most. And so I hope that God's used this last month just to stir some of that up in your heart. And cause you to maybe ask some difficult questions about what you believe matters most. So I want to give you three things to walk away from today. They aren't tied directly to this text, but they're tied to the message as a whole. And these are three practices that I want to give you because I would love for us to start doing this as a church. It's super exciting when God's people get in God's word. First thing, read from the entire Bible. We don't have to be scared of these obscure little Old Testament books, do we? Like, we don't go here. They're like that back corner of our attic that we're like, I don't remember what I put back there, and I'm not really sure I want to go, right? Don't be scared of it. This is a good thing. I did a little math. Um, my copy of the Word of God has eight, or 1,825 pages, 1,444 of which are Old Testament. It's like 79%. Depending on your Bible, it's going to be a little bit different, and that's okay. So imagine, though, if we went to a restaurant, we sit down, and we're ready to eat, And the server brings us a menu, and I just rip off the bottom fifth, and I go, no, this is just what I want. That's what we do to the Bible all the time. It's insulting to the chef. It's a missed opportunity because you will never learn to love what you will never taste. And so read the entire Bible. This is a good thing. Get in there and mess around, all right? If this is brand new to you, I do want to push you. Go sign up for a men's study or a women's study or get in a group because that's what we do. We just get in the word of God. Second thing I want to give you, read the entire Bible, but secondly, look for Jesus everywhere. If you've heard me preach, you know this is a big deal to me. I believe the Bible points to one ultimate message, one ultimate hope, one ultimate life giver, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, period. I want to encourage you, if you're reading through any part of the Bible, it's like deep in the weeds of Leviticus. We were there last week, right? Or if you're in these like lofty antiphonal poetry in Psalms and Proverbs, develop the discipline of asking, where is Jesus in this text? Because he's everywhere. If you know my my personal story, God woke me up through the book of Ecclesiastes. He stirred my hunger for Jesus in this really depressing, like kind of weird book. And I don't know, if you know me, maybe that connects, I don't know. But it's this sense of like, Jesus is here, and I just, I've never seen him before. Read the entire Bible, look for Jesus everywhere, and then lastly, come to the Bible on your knees. Come to the Bible on your knees. Not literally, unless maybe that's your thing, and that's fine. Here's the danger. Preaching series out of these books in the Old Testament, the danger is they can be interesting and not transforming. There's two types of people I've noticed. People come to the Bible looking for facts, okay? And it's like when you read a series on Haggai, you go, man, I never knew that before. This little detail about that and this little cultural insight. And that's really good. But God didn't give us his word so that we can be interested in it. He gave us his word so that we can be transformed by it. 
And so come to the Bible saying, God, show me what you want for me. Show me where my life doesn't match up what you want me to see here in this pan of gold. And then show me how to reorient my life around you. Three questions I'll give you in that. If this is you, and you're like, all right, I'm in. What's God's word saying to you? What are you going to do about it? And then if you're with other people, how can I encourage you in that? If you want to make disciples, that's all you need. The word of God and those questions are questions similar. (laughs) What's the word of God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? And then how can I encourage you in that? Making disciples using the Bible is a very simple and very hard thing because you have to be honest. So this old man named Haggai, he carried a very heavy weight. But God would use Haggai's message, four speeches over four months, to challenge, encourage, provoke, and give hope to his people. Just one parting thought before we pray. If you don't know Jesus, let me beg you to consider him. And even that is a little lighter than I'd like to say it. (laughs) If you know Jesus as a portrait on your wall, or something you say when you smack your finger with a hammer, but you don't know him as Lord over your life and lover of your soul, you are missing life to its fullest. You can see shadows of him here in the Old Testament. And then again, if you fast forward, John 10, 10, he said, I have come that you might have life, but that you might have it to the full. The reason I think Haggai's message is so important is there's so many people wandering around our world like ghosts. We have life, but we don't have it to the full. And Jesus is saying, here, I want to give it to you. You need to admit the fact that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's law, every one of us, including me, multiple times. You need to believe that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, that God sent him to give you the perfection that he requires from you. And then confess your need. Get on your knees and accept him for who he is and give him your life. It's the only way to live a life that's worth living. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that drove you to give it to us. You didn't have to. You could just say, figure it out on your own. And you'd be justified in doing that because we don't add a thing to you. But you love us enough that you want to draw us close to yourself. You give us your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for awakening our hunger for him, showing him all throughout your word, for bringing him into this world to grow up only to die on a cross for sinners like us. Thank you for loving us so much. That we could be adopted as yours. Your sons and your daughters, welcome in your home to sit on your lap and to bow, to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.